They couldn't get Tex off the rock because he said there was no way he was going to leave the rock is really how it worked out. He, he was stuck there. They threw him rivers. He said, I'm not, I'm not leaving. And um, it was, a, it was a, an ordeal. Let's take our Bibles one more time and turn to Psalm 86. Psalm 86, as you're turning there, um, two things. Um, uh, the first thing is, Psalm 86, we're going to look at verse 11. In February, we were here, and I preached from Psalm 86, verse 11, and the first phrase. Tonight, we're going to preach from the second phrase. I don't expect you to remember the first phrase, but if, if you keep notes in your Bibles, you may look and go, oh, this is going to be a repeat, and I don't want you to turn me off. It's not a repeat. We're just going to get a little further into the verse. Psalm 86, and we're going to look at verse number 11. <clears throat> then also... Um, I haven't mentioned this over the last couple of weeks, but if you are interested in just listening to some practical conversations on missions and you're a podcast person and you like that kind of stuff, um, my uh, very good friend, Stephen Madoff, who is our Southeast Asia director at BIMI, and I host a podcast every week. It comes out on Wednesdays at... Uh, 5.59 a.m. Now, you don't have to get it at 5.59 a.m. because I know that's the middle of the night for a lot of people. Uh, but um, you can get it on Wednesdays. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, um, help me girls, uh, Pandora, uh, pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast, you can listen to it. It's just practical uh, conversations about a half hour each time, a little bit under. We try to keep it just shy of a half hour. And it's just a conversation on different topics uh, that impact both missionaries and the churches that they partner with. And we talk about everything from how to have a great missions conference from the pastor's perspective or the missionary's perspective or um, what it is like to go through language school, what's it like to spend the, the holidays away on a foreign mission field, or what's it like to be on a foreign mission field when a major national event in your homeland happens. Um, you know, we were in Canada in language school on September the 11th, 2001, and missionaries go through those kind of things. If that's the kind of thing that you might be interested in, uh, go ahead and check it out if you would. Pastor, I should have asked you about that. I guess it's okay now. If it's not okay, forget about it and don't, uh, don't tune in, all right? But uh, maybe you would like to uh, check that out. And, and if it's a help to you, share it with somebody else. Psalm 86 in our Bibles tonight. And um, I, uh, I mentioned we looked at just the first phrase of Psalm 86, verse 11, back in February, February 9th, if I'm not mistaken, and my notes are correct. That was when we looked at this, and so I don't expect that you'll remember it, uh, really, but um, <clears throat> they're kind of standalone phrases, so I think it'll be okay. Psalm 86 and verse 11, David is speaking. He says, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Uh, teach me thy way. We spoke about a submitted will way back in February when we looked at that first phrase. Tonight I want to look at just the second phrase where I see a sincere will. I will walk in thy way, or I will walk in thy truth rather. And then I want to look at a settled, we won't look at a settled will, not tonight, maybe some other time in the future. Uh, a settled will, unite my heart to fear thy name. And if you look at Psalm 86 and verse 11, you see the emphasis that David puts on doing things God's way. 
Um, he talks about thy way. That's God's paths. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies, according to Psalm 25 and verse 10. Thy truth, he talks about God's proclamations. Thy word is truth, John 17 and verse 17. Thy name, God's person, he is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14 and verse 6. And as we came to, uh, to Psalm 86, I know so long ago, and I'm just going to kind of refresh your memory because some of this needs to be in our minds tonight. When David starts off and he says, teach me thy way, we see this submitted will. And um, we said there were three things that were required to come to God and, and say, teach me thy way. An honest assessment. And the honest assessment of David was he was poor and needy. That's verse one. He says, I'm poor and needy. I need God to teach me. And, you know, you'll never be taught unless you recognize the need to be taught. Then there was a humble attitude. Um, humility brings us to that point where we not only recognize the need to be taught, but we submit to that teacher as well. And uh, then there was a holy ambition. That word teach in Psalm 86 in verse 11, it intrigues me. It's a very, very interesting word. And most often that word teach in Psalm 86 in verse number 11 it's, it comes from a Hebrew word that is most often translated in our Bible as to shoot an arrow or to cast a stone. And really what David is saying is, Lord, you put me and place me where you want to. And, and you do with me what you want to do. Uh, because we don't get to decide. If you're the arrow and you're the stone and you're in God's sling or in God's bow, you don't get to decide where he shoots. He shoots where he wants to and he places you where he wants to, uh, you to be. Remember that the New Testament says God has placed us in the body where it has pleased him. And so God is going to places where, we, where it pleases him if we come to him with a submitted will. But there also needs to be a follow-up to that, and that's that sincere will, the second phrase, I will walk in thy truth. And so let's look at that tonight for a little bit together if we can. Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Father, bless our time together tonight. Speak to every heart and work in every life, and we pray, God, that you would have your will and way that we would be yielded uh, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God as the Word of God is preached so that you can accomplish in our lives what you purpose to this evening. And I pray that we would each be like David and come to you and say, Lord, you place me where you want me to be, but not only that, God, I purpose to stay and, and, and flourish where you have placed me. And so help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When our son Caleb was only about two years old, he had a special affection for food. Food of all kinds, actually, but he especially liked anything that was sugary and sweet, and he liked uh, jelly donuts, for one thing. And, you know, um, Caleb was the kind of kid that could you know, he could do just about anything under the sun to get to food if he needed to get to food. And one day, 
Paula had gotten both Amanda and Caleb. We were still living here in Torrington. Caleb was only about two years old and, and gotten them breakfast and got them cleaned up for the day. And they're going to start their day and do whatever it was they were going to do that day. And, and she sees Caleb walking toward her with powdered sugar and jelly all over his face. And she didn't really know where that came from. Uh, like I said, Caleb, I remember at 10 months old, we were getting ready to come to church one Sunday morning, and I turned over my shoulder, and he was literally on the third shelf of a bookshelf that we had, and I thought, this kid's going to be a problem, you know, and so he could climb anywhere, he could get anywhere, but we always made sure the jelly donuts, they were way out of Caleb's reach, so she didn't know where that came from, but then she remembered she had thrown away some old nasty donuts in the trash, they're old, they were nasty, but they weren't too nasty for Caleb to grab out of the trash and to eat. And you know, sometimes your child does something and you know they did it, but you don't have the evidence to prove it. And so a lot of times they, they can get away with it, it seems like. But be sure, children, your sin will find you out. Well, this day... The evidence was all over Caleb's face. And so there was no need for a lengthy and detailed investigation. No one read Caleb his Miranda rights. He was not offered an attorney. Uh, he was not going to face a jury of his peers, and he was not going to be afforded a phone call. Who would he call? The investigation was completed Without a certified forensic scientist, a mom knows sugar on the face of a two-year-old and what raspberry jelly looks like on the face of a two-year-old. Caleb was found summarily guilty of getting food out of the garbage when he knew he shouldn't have, and the evidence was overwhelming. There was no way he could put up a defense. I tell you that story because I want us to keep in mind that in this life, where you walk, where you spend your time in your days, in Caleb's case, in the garbage can, where you spend your time in your days will always be evident in your life. Where you spend the bulk of your time and days and what you do with your time and days will become evident in your day-to-day -day life. And David in this text, talks about walking in God's truth. And as David mentions, he, he, he tells us there's going to be this, this absolute desire that he has to walk in God's truth. And you know what? If you spend your days walking in God's truth, it will become evident that that's what you're doing. And, and, and so David says to God with a sincere will, I will walk in thy truth. He, he's not going to stray from this idea of being taught in God's way, but he is saying, I'm going to walk in God's way as well. And there's this dedication to simply do what God wants him to do. And I want you to think about this. I, I told you this word teach has the idea of a, an arrow being shot from a bow or a stone being slung from a sling. And David knew something about slinging stones, didn't he? And uh, he knew that the person who threw the rock could decide where the rock would go. And David says, uh, you go ahead and do that. That's where he starts off. God, you put me where you want to put me. And then he follows up with this statement. 
and when you do that, I'll stay there. And I'll, I'll walk there, and I'll do what you have me to do there. And, and David is letting us know in advance, wherever God puts me, that's where I'm going to serve. Uh, he's, he's not leaving any leeway for him to say, you know what? I don't like where God shot me out of the air, or, uh, shot me out of the bow. I don't like where God cast me from his sling. And, and David had this holy ambition when he comes to the Lord and he says, look it, I'm going to do what you want me to do. And you know what? I, I think it's so important that you and I decide in advance that not only are we going to submit ourselves to God and say, God, you put me where you want me to be, but also when you put me there, that's where I'll flourish. I firmly believe that in the Christian life, we should grow where we're planted. I believe that, that, that our life, I shared this in Sunday school last Sunday morning. This isn't a repeat of Sunday school, but I firmly believe that if my life is not my own and I am bought with a price, that when God places me somewhere, I do not have the liberty to pick up and move somewhere else unless God specifically and providentially leads me somewhere else. That I don't get to just pick and choose where I want to go. Charles Spurgeon said this, when taught, I will practice what I know. Truth shall not be a mere doctrine or sentiment to me, but a matter of daily life. The true servant of God regulates his walk by his master's will. And hence, he never walks deceitfully for God's way is ever truth. Providence has a way for us, and it is our wisdom to keep in it. We must not be as the bullock which needs to be driven and urged forward because it likes not the road, but be as men who voluntarily go where their trusted friend and helper appoints their path. You know, the sad fact is we are prone to kind of just walk the path of our own choosing, are we not? And just kind of just decide where we want to go. But somebody who is truly submitted to the Lord will understand that moving on without God's direction and permission brings us outside of God's will for our lives. And we're not to decide to just up and leave and move on to greener pastures and go somewhere else. Ours is to grow where we are planted. And, and, and like David's, this is a decision I think that is best made in advance I don't know about you, but I think there are a lot of decisions in this life that should be made in advance because it makes things a lot easier when, when you're going through your day-to-day -day routines of life. For example, I don't decide on Sunday afternoon whether I'm coming to church Sunday night. The fact of the matter is I decided whenever I got saved 30 years ago, whenever that was, when church is open, I'll be in church. That was the decision I made. So it, for me, it's not hard to decide whether I'm going to go. You know what? My kids, uh, not one time in my entire, any of our children's life, Amanda's, what, 26 or 27, I can never remember, unless there was some kind of catastrophe where they were sick in the hospital or something like that, there's never been an occasion when my kids have said on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, or a midweek service, are we going to church? Because they know something. The decision has been made. It's a lot easier to make certain decisions in advance. And I think, like David, if we're going to say to God, you cast me where you want to put me, like, a, a, like a, 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 somebody throws a stone out of a sling or shoots an arrow out of a bow, you put me where you want, you better decide in advance, I'm going to stay there when I get there. 
and I'm going to grow and flourish where I'm planted. Because the truth of the matter is, uh, what we do is say, okay, God, you show me where you want me to go. We might even kind of entertain it for a little while and then decide, you know what, I don't like it here and move somewhere else. Um, it is not up to you and I to decide where we get to do or, or, or serve the Lord. He hath placed us in the body where it hath pleased him. And if we're going to get to that point, I want us to just think about three things, three things um, tonight that will help us in this decision that I see that must have been true in David's life as well. As he makes this decision in advance, God, wherever you, wherever you place me, that's where I will grow and flourish, and that's where I will serve you. Number one, I think it, it requires unquestioning confidence. Unquestioning confidence. This is the type of confidence that says not, uh, that, that God can and will place me in the very best place for my life and his service when I'm submitted completely to his will. This is the kind of confidence that says, though I don't maybe fully understand why God chose this place, there certainly is no better place because this is the place that God has chosen. And the truth of the matter is, God has put us in some places in my life and in my family's life where I didn't understand what he was doing and it didn't seem to make a lot of sense, but, but God knew knew what he was doing. Let me give you an example from scripture. You remember, uh, uh, no doubt, the day when Jesus fed 5,000 men, women and children beside, and his disciples were the waiters for those people. They had a very long day of ministering to people. They had fed some 5,000 men. There was probably, conservatively speaking, 15,000 plus people that were fed that day. Can you imagine waiting 15,000 tables? Or really, I guess maybe 5,000 tables if you broke those up into families, mom, dad, and one child. That would be a really conservative number. 5,000? That's a lot. They had been a, had a busy day. And late into the evening... Uh, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 14, he says, hey, I want you to get in this boat and I want you to row across the sea, across the Sea of Galilee. I'll meet you on the other side. This was at the end of a long and tax taxing day. And as the disciples get in, they begin to row across the boat. If you're familiar with Matthew 14, uh, they begin to row across the Sea of Galilee and something happens in the middle of the night. They hit a raging storm. Now, they, no doubt, were surprised by the storm, but Jesus wasn't. He knew that the storm would be there. He was, he was not, you know, uh, unknowing about the storm that they would hit. But as you consider the disciples in the, the boat on the Sea of Galilee in a raging storm in the middle of the night, in the third watch, the Bible says, so very, very Early in the morning, in the dark hours, uh, they are rowing. And the Bible says that they really had this unquestioning or indicates that they had this unquestioning confidence in the ability of their Lord and Savior to place them in the right place. Uh, even when the storm started raging, there's no indication that when they got out into, by the way, when did they hit that storm? In the middle of the sea. So that means they're about halfway through. So if you get halfway through, you have a choice, right? I can press on to the other half, or it's just as easy maybe to go backwards. But they knew that Jesus said, you press on and go forward. 
And in Mark chapter 6, verse 47 and 48, the Bible says, while, while the storm was raging and the disciples were in the midst of the sea, they were toiling to head in the direction that the Lord had told them to go. And this is what we read in Matthew, uh, Mark chapter four, uh, 6, verse 47. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And he saw them. I think it's so interesting. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and the Bible says that Jesus saw them. He knew, he was aware, he was watching. He saw them toiling and rowing. By the way, another parallel passage says he was also praying at that time, so that's important to know. I think he was praying for them. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them. Now, there is an important detail given in, this ver in these verses that show us the unquestioning confidence that the Lord was right because it says that they were in the midst of the sea. They were at the halfway point. And the Bible says that the winds were contrary to them. In other words, they were paddling in or rowing into a headwind. Think about that for a second. They were struggling to get move forward into a headwind. What would have been easier to do? It would have been a lot easier to turn around and make that headwind a tailwind, wouldn't it have? It'd have been a, a physically, it would have been a lot easier to say, hey, you know what? Who wants to paddle in or row into the headwind? Let's turn this thing around, make it a tailwind. And guess what? It wouldn't be that hard to get back to the other side. It would have been the wrong side though. And, and, and how many of us, I wonder, would have said, you know what? Let's not keep paddling forward. Let's back up. Let's turn around. It'll be a lot easier. And I wonder if some of us might not have turned back. Now, before we really fully answer that, I want us to also recognize something. It was at the halfway point when Jesus was on the shore watching them. And, and then sometime after they passed that halfway point is when Jesus walks out on the sea to meet them. And as he arrives... Though the disciples are frightened, they show no sign of questioning the Lord's direction in their life. There was no conversation in the boat with, you know, are you sure he said paddle to the other side? Are you sure he said row to the other side? They knew what Jesus said. They were in the midst of doing that. And Jesus calls out and he says, hey, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. There's so much for us to learn about this. More than we would have time to look at. But really, I want us to understand that they displayed an unquestioning confidence that wherever Jesus places me and wherever he tells me to get to, that's the best thing I can do. I will walk in thy way. And, and I, want to, I want to encourage you just from this passage from Matthew and from Mark about the disciples as we use them as an illustration tonight to this unquestioning confidence you may start following the Lord and walking in the direction the Lord tells you to, and guess what? You're going to face opposition. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of what kind of opposition and when. You're going to face it. Uh, remember three things as you, as you meet that opposition. Number one, remember this. Jesus put me here. That alone is, is comfort, is it not? Jesus put me here. Even though it seems like it's strange... God put me here. 
And remember that Jeremiah 29, verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And you know what? If you and I were halfway across the Sea of Galilee and we decided to make the headwind a tailwind and turn back, we would have never got to the expected end. We would have never got what God had purposed for us. Jesus put me here. Number two, remember this. Jesus has placed his eye on me while I am here. He stood on the shore and watched. He knew what he was doing. He was growing their faith. Uh, He knows exactly what we're facing. And you and I may be taken by surprise by the storms of life, but Jesus isn't. Jesus placed me here. Number three, notice this. Jesus will make his presence known to me here. Jesus will make his presence known to me here. He, he may not do it in the time that we think he should do it, but he will always do it at the right time. I think for the disciples, and in that context, when they got past the halfway point, it had to be the right time because at that point they had showed a great deal of faith, hadn't they? At the halfway point, they still could have just turned around and said, hey, no, it's going to be a lot easier to go back. You cross the halfway point, now you're showing, hey, no, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to get to where Jesus wants me to go. And David said, Lord, you put me where you want me to be, I'll walk in your way. I'll do what you will have me to do. And so, number one, there has to be this unquestioning confidence in God and his ability to put us where he wants us to be. Number two, there needs to be an unwavering commitment, an unwavering commitment. And many of us never walk in the way of the Lord that he has chosen for us because we simply are not content with his place and his choosing. We might not ever say it that bluntly. You might never say, well, I'm not, gonna, I'm not staying here. I know God put me here, but I don't like it here, so I'm going to go somewhere else. We probably wouldn't say it that bluntly. But the fact is, when you and I pick up and move from one place to another and God isn't leading, we're really showing that we think we know better than God and we're not content with the place that he has picked out for us. And sometimes we have this unbiblical idea concerning contentment, I think. And I think we just don't understand what what biblical contentment is. You know, you've got to learn to be content wherever God puts you. And, And we think contentment is this, easy street. I'll be content when I hit easy street. We see contentment as the result of the fulfillment of all our expectations and aspirations. It's, even, it's easy and even natural to be content when everything's going your way, isn't it? I mean, who wouldn't be content when everything's going your way and you're living on easy street? That's the world's view of contentment. But, but the Christian who's dedicated to God's direction for their life has to learn that contentment is something very, very different. Biblical contentment is an easy street. In fact, the kind of unwavering contentment that I'm talking about tonight is not something that naturally comes to us at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul says very specifically this kind of biblical contentment to learn that even in the midst of the storm, I can be content is something that you have to learn. It's an acquired thing. It's not something that comes to us naturally at all. Paul says this in Philippians 4, verse 11 through 12. Not that I speak of respect of want, for I have learned. And whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. You know what? I 
hate Tennessee. I have had to learn to be content in that state. That's not my state. I know Paul's not speaking about states like we name them in our country. In fact, he goes on and he tells us what state he's talking about. It's something far uh, different than, and, and far more trying than just living in Tennessee. He says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now remember, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. This wasn't a theory that Paul was putting forth. This was something he was living out as he wrote it. And the natural mind understands contentment only as everything's going my way, I'm getting what I want, and so I'm content. The spiritual mind learns to be content, whether they're abased or abounding, whether they're full or whether they're hungry. That's what Paul says. Whether there is enough or we're suffering need, the spiritual mind learns to be content in the middle of the calm sea as well as the middle of the raging storm. Here's the thing. You say, how do I learn this? It must be difficult to learn this, right? Well, I don't think so. I think we make it harder than it needs to be. I think that really the key to learning this is probably very, very simple. And that is this. When we have a firm grip of, of who we are without the Lord. You remember what David started off with in Psalm 86 and verse 1? I am poor and needy. When we remember and come to terms with what I deserve from God. What do I deserve from God? I deserve wrath and judgment. That's what I deserve. So when, when we understand that wherever God places us as his children, he does it with a loving hand and a loving heart that he's doing for us far better than we deserve. When we can say like Paul, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me, for, in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. You see this kind of contentment that Paul speaks about that he learned in a, in a Roman prison. It's not something you go to school for. It's not something you learn at a seminary. This is a degree you get at the cross. When you remember the cross and you remember all that Jesus did to give you mercy, that everything I receive by my Father's hand is merciful, you learn to be content in every situation. And until we can learn to be content in difficult times in the midst of the storm, we really show that I think I deserve better. If you're to walk in God's truth and be dedicated to his direction, we're going to have to learn unwavering contentment, understanding that everything that comes to us from God that isn't pure and undiluted wrath is somehow mingled with mercy and therefore better than I deserve, I can learn contentment. I'm discontent because I don't think I'm getting what I deserve. But when I recognize that all I deserve is wrath, unmingled wrath, wrath poured out without mercy, 
The kind of wrath that the end of the, the Bible speaks about during those tribulation hours when we will not be here, thank God. That's what I deserve. That everything I get from God is somehow mingled with mercy. I can learn contentment because I learned something. Everything God gives me is better than I deserve. Every single thing he does for me is better than I deserve. So there has to be this unconditional contentment. And then notice this with me. Thirdly, and we'll wrap this up. There has to be an unconditional commitment as well. An unconditional commitment. There must be a, a steadfast and fixed determination to stay faithful to God and to walk in his truth no matter what comes and no matter what it costs. There must be that kind of unconditional contentment like that of Jesus who steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, though he knew what was coming. That unconditional contentment that uh, the, the three Hebrew boys showed in Daniel when you remember they wouldn't bow before Nebuchadnezzar's idol and, and they, you know, Nebuchadnezzar calls them in and basically he says, okay, boys, you got it wrong, but we're going to give you a second chance because I like you. You didn't bow when you were supposed to bow. The music played and you didn't bow to my golden idol the way I told you to. And, and I know that I have decreed that you're going to die if you, don't do, if you don't do that, that you're going to face the fiery furnace. But because I like you and because I like your friend Daniel and I see that when, when, you know, when you're around, God blesses me and I like that, I'm going to give you a second chance. And... Those three Hebrew boys looked at Nebuchadnezzar and they politely but sternly said, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. You know what they're saying? We don't, we don't have to think about this, king. Thanks for the second chance, but no thanks. We're not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. What are they saying? They're not saying... God might be able to deliver us. They're saying, if God wants to, he can deliver us. And he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. Know this, he may deliver us from the furnace. He may not. One thing we know, he's going to deliver us from you. But if not, be it known, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Even when they were given a second chance, they said, yeah, no, no, we're not going to do that. That's commitment. Uh, it's the kind of commitment that caused Daniel to pray when he knew the handwriting was put on and the, the ordinance was signed, that whoever prayed in those 30 days would have to go and face the, the den of lions. And the Bible says when Daniel knew that the law had been signed, just like he had done a time, he got back in his room, put his face toward Jerusalem, and he prayed. That kind of commitment. The kind of commitment that Paul showed when he face that ominous prophecy that if you go to Jerusalem, Paul, things aren't going to go well, and, and really you shouldn't go. And many people said, Paul, don't go. And in Acts 20 and verse number 24, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to, dis, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And if we do, uh, do not have this kind of commitment fixed before we reach or hit the opposition or the opposition, position hits us, I'm going to tell you what, it's going to be hard to come up and muster that kind of commitment in the midst of it.
sooner or later, we're going to leave the battlefield. I did not say lose our salvation, but I did say leave the battlefield. Remember that, that Paul tells Timothy that the Christian life, this morning we talked about the, the, the different ways that the, the Holy Spirit of God told the human writers to equate the Christian life to an Olympian in different games, boxing, running, wrestling. Um, Paul also uses this metaphor. It's like a soldier's life. It's like that of somebody in the military. He says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse number 3, endure hardness as a good soldier. And when David chose that word teach, when the Holy Spirit of God told David, you write this, you use this Hebrew word teach in Psalm 86 verse 11, I think he was reminding us of something. Remember that word? It means to be slung like a stone. It means to be shot like an arrow. I think he was reminding us that all of the Christian life is a soldier's life, that it's a battle. That wherever God puts me, there's still going to be a battle. The problem is, we think the Christian life is a, is a cruise ship vacation, not, not a soldier's life. I used to work with a guy who was a recruiter for the, for the Marines. And uh, this was, I worked with him after Desert Storm, but he had been a recruiter pre-Desert Storm as well, for those of us who remember Desert Storm. And... Um, he did a pretty good job signing guys up for the Marines and especially for reserves. You remember, too, that there was a pretty lengthy period in our country between basically Vietnam all the way up to Desert Storm where the military, yeah, there were certain different operations that they carried out, but by and large, pretty peaceful time. And a lot of guys signed up for the reserves thinking, hey, this is a good way to earn some extra money. I'll join the Marine Reserves. I'll go on the weekends. I'll do my duty. I'll, cut, I'll get a paycheck, and it'll be all right. And many of those who signed their name on the contract, my friend told me, never really thought they would end up in any real battles. And he said, you know what? When we started calling people up to tell them, you're going to be a part of Desert Storm, there were a lot of them who said, no, 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 I, I didn't sign up for this. And they had to be reminded, no, you actually did. That your contract is an unconditional commitment. That you have to do this. Uh, that there can be no discharge but by dishonorable means or by death. That's it. Uh, when our son was... In the process of, he had already signed his papers with the Marines and he was just waiting to ship for boot camp and all. Um, we went and we spent, a, we spent a, a day with him and a bunch of Marines on a field somewhere in Arizona and they basically, they showed off for the whole day. You know, how physically fit they were and all that kind of stuff. And uh, at the end of the day, the main recruiter for our area came over and we got to watch as they got totally chewed out. And he basically he said this, he said, you know, after what I've seen today, some of you think you're shipping to boot camp, but you're too sorry to ship to boot camp. And so we're not going to ship some of you to boot camp. So right now I need some volunteers who are willing to, sh to ship early. And I remember Caleb's hand going straight up, just like that. He wants to ship early. See, he was waiting for an MOS that was going to make him wait for several months to have to ship to boot camp and then get his MOS and get started. And like me, he's not a real good waiter. 
And so, you know, he was getting anxious. And so he, he shoots his hand up and he says, I'll ship early. I didn't think much about it. I just thought, well, that was pretty natural for Caleb, actually. The problem was that that was only a couple months away from his sister's wedding that he had committed to be at. And I remember not too long after him calling me and telling me, hey, Dad, I got a ship before Amanda's wedding. I was like, well, you raised your hand. He said, no, I could, I, could, I could probably get out of it. I said, no, you can't. You can't get out of it. You, you raised your hand. You said you would do that. It's too late now. And as difficult a decision as that was, you know what? He raised his hand. You know, the Bible still says in Psalm 15 that a righteous man keeps his word even to his hurt. It's still in the Bible. And, and I want us to understand something, that if we're going to say to God, I will walk in your ways, there's no discharge but by dishonorable means or death. That's it. For the Christian dedicated to the direction of God in their lives, there is no discharge other than dishonorable means or death. David said to God, God, you take me out of your quiver like a bow, or like an arrow rather, put me in your bow, draw it back, let it fly, and you put me where you want me, where it pleases you. And when I get there, I will walk in your way. I will do what you tell me to do. Uh, this, this sincere will, not just a submitted will, but a sincere will. And I want to ask you a question tonight. Do you have that kind of sincere will that says to God, wherever you put me, that's what I'm going to do. That's, that's where I'm, wherever you plant me, that's where I'm going to grow and flourish. It's not always easy. It, it, it's it's going to be difficult from time to time. It's going to take some things. It's going to take unquestioning confidence. God knows best where to put me. It's going to take an unwavering contentment that says, I'm going to have to learn to be content. We were driving somewhere, I don't know, we're in Tennessee, and, and I was murmuring and complaining about living in eastern Tennessee. And I said to my wife and girls, I said, you know, I guess it's a good thing you don't have to like where you live to serve God. God said, be here, and so we'll be here. You know what? You know how I can learn to be content? Well, not just because I know it's always mingled with mercy. It's really just a stopping place for us. I mean, we've been here the last three weeks. We're, we're going to go back to Chattanooga. We're only going to be there for a couple, a couple of days, and we're going to move on. We're going to go somewhere else. God still knows best, and we need to learn that contentment. And then there needs to be that unconditional commitment that says, you know what? I really can't get a discharge unless I do something dishonorable like walk out of the will of God, or I go home. Those are the two options. And so I want to encourage us to, to kind of be like Paul, or David rather. God, wherever you put me, that's where I'll grow and I'll flourish. And I will serve you because to bring this to the New Testament, God hath placed us in the body where it hath pleased him. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's amazing grace. 
that God could be pleased with me at all, but that he decided he would put me somewhere where it pleases him, why would I not want to serve him there where it pleases him? Our Father, we, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and Thank you for the attentiveness of your people this evening as pastor comes and closes the service now. Your will and way be accomplished in our lives, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.